And this is in the middle of uh, World War II. And where everybody around her is speaking about the demonizing the Jews, who are the curse of France. Supposedly, all, all the problems of France has to do with the Jews. And she has a different experience yeah. of Judaism, but she doesn't really know what it is, except that she wants to belong to these good people. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the show. This is episode four of season seven, and today I'm talking to Talia Karner. In her bio, Talia is called an activist, a feminist, and a humanitarian who gives a voice to those without one. And that's really all the introduction I'm going to give Talia because we cover so much in this interview. It's such an interesting interview. Um, and it's a long one, so I want to get right to it. So here's my conversation with Talia Karner. Talia, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, your latest novel, The Boy with the Star Tattoo, released on Tuesday. Can you tell me about this book? Uh, the novel is set in France. It's a historical fiction. Two events set in France, but related to Israel. One, 1946, post the Holocaust, which was what I did was actually was true for all over Europe. Israeli teams, then Palestine, uh, roamed the countrysides of Europe in search of Jewish orphans, which is an amazing story because yeah. how do you find a lost orphan, somebody who didn't come back? Do you knock on every farm door house and door and and you or a monastery and said do you happen to have a, a jewish kid here and the person who has raised the kid for four years says oh sure you can take the kid across the mediterranean to a country where she doesn't speak the language and that stranger will then take her right. yet this is what happened so that's an amazing story by itself, the youth aliyah. The other one is the 1969 escape of boats of Cherbourg. And that is a story about boats that had been ordered, paid for, designed by Israel to be built at a shipyard in Cherbourg, France, but whose delivery was blocked due, due to the French arms embargo on Israel. So here the French government that had uh, signed the contract would now not deliver the boats. And in an interesting maneuver that took many, many months in the planning, which what my book describes as the background, the boats on Christmas Eve 1969 took off. And I'm tying those two stories together in uh, a human drama that's very touching. So they tell me. <laughs> Neat. So what was the inspiration for this novel? Amazingly, just a road sign. My oh. husband and I were driving in Normandy, France. Mm-hmm. 
And I saw this sign to Cherbourg, which is not, it's a port city, not very interesting to visit when there are so many other charming places in Normandy. But as we drove on, I remembered a case of what happened, that Israeli action. And I, in the following months, I read about it. I wasn't, I was writing another novel at the time, The Third Mm -hmm. Daughter, and I didn't have time for this. (laughs) But when I once, by just a chance, mentioned that to an Israeli journalist, that one day I was going to look into the story of the boats of Cherbourg, which everybody over a certain age knew because it was a huge deal. Yes. She called me a few hours later and said to me, Hadar Kimchi is waiting for your call. And I couldn't believe it because I'd read since that time I saw the road sign, I knew that he was the chief commander on the entire operation, and I didn't expect that he was still alive. I met him a couple of times, more, three times, and he was 89 years old at the time, and the people he connected me with were up from his age up to 98. Wow. And at that point, I couldn't I couldn't tell them, well, wait two years until I have time to interview you. <laughs> right. And I had to drop off a lot that I, what I was doing, the book I was working on, and mm. devote myself to those about 14 to 17 interviews right that summer. And then uh, I flew to Cherbourg looking for the human story because what was I doing? I don't write naval warfare but I trusted myself that when I walk in those cobblestone alleys, the story would come to me. And that's exactly what happened. By the third day, I had my protagonist narrated the story, and she took me into the second thread, the one I mentioned to you, which was the youth and combining them into the human drama that I needed that's not about naval warfare. Right. So how did you, I mean, you said the character that was involved in the Cherbourg project is the person who got you somehow involved in the youth Aaliyah No, uh, not quite. Um, maybe I'm, it's a lot of material to absorb. Yeah. The admiral, the rear admiral, 89 years old, who, right. I, whom I got to interview, told me about this uh, all of this oh, business okay. but and he also opened his flip phone and let me copy phone numbers of 14 people still alive and coherent so i could interview them okay. i did that yeah but after that summer and then before winter set in i realized i better get myself to Cherbourg because i had all of this information but had never visited the town. And I also needed the story. I never, I've never done research like this. It came to me with the information without the story or the character. Usually it comes to me with first with a character. Right. So I um, flew to France 
Cherbourg mm-hmm. again. And uh, as I walked in that town, I was able to strip the streets into what it had been at that time, 47 prior. And uh, I got the protagonist talking to me, a 20-year-old, right, who happened to be I'd appeared 10 years prior in the epilogue of one of my novels. And she happened to be in France, that epilogue of Jerusalem Maiden. It's the granddaughter who shows up to tell, tell something about that story that happens 24 years later or something. And, uh, and that's now 20 years (laughs) before. So, as she's telling me, uh, I, all of a sudden I realized I have this character. She's 20 years, years old. She is Israeli. She just came out of the IDF. She had been in intelligence. She's very smart. What she does in the epilogue is very smart. And um, that's whom I need right now in France in 1968. It was complete coincidence that the events a book that was long published now i'm i need a protagonist a female one and i know her family i know her family history because the entire book had to do with her, her grandmother and the epilogue had to do with what happened since uh so she was perfect and she's a narrator of my book i love when things work out like that but because she came to me, and I already knew her history, her mother had been a child of that youth Aliyah, uh, one who had been saved by those agents, Israeli agents, and brought to Israel. And that is what brought me into her beginning to investigate that story to find out more, and it takes her... It takes us into the current story uh, out of her interest in that particular subject. And we okay. get to learn. And then I, during, in the writing of the book, I actually take three weeks in a point of view of one of those agents as he actually searches for those lost children that no one claimed. Okay, wow. That's kind of amazing that both of these events taking place in France and involving Jewish people or Israeli, the Cherbourg is specifically an Israeli project, right? Yes, it's a Navy. It was Israeli Navy. Right. But these fit together so well for your your two timelines. Yes. Yeah. And and it's amazing because a story that is so much... has so much to do with Israel, but both are actually set completely in France. In France, right, yeah. And we get to know also the the mother of the boy with a star tattoo, which is another very touching story, and Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give that away because it's important not to know at this point. Right, yeah, we we don't want to have any spoilers. So can you tell me anything about the backdrop of naval warfare? I know you said that it's it's not what you typically write. So how does it play into the story? Sharon, who is 
my protagonist that I already have a name from that other book, yes. from Jerusalem Made, and those of my readers who had read it, it was a bestseller. Yeah. Sharon is recruited. Now she just comes out of the military. She goes through a personal tragedy. There was a, uh, a an Israeli submarine that had sunk, disappeared a few months before in January of 68. And that was her boyfriend. And so she's in mourning and because they can't find the bodies. It's very much what's happening today where people are waiting for the hostages. Yes. They are just waiting and waiting to hear where they, maybe they were, there are rumors. So she meets the some other naval people. They notice her, find out about her, and this guy by the name of Daniel Yarden recruits her, offers her, to come to Sherbrook to work at their team. The team had been there for several years by that time. Six of the, five of the boats had been delivered. When she arrives, number six and number seven are now being delivered from under the embargo. So against the French policy. So she right away gets involved. And he, he, so he manages to, convince her to come. But the reason she actually accepts the job is that she finds out during the in their conversations that he himself was a Jewish orphan. Oh, and I she see. wants to find out more about her mother because her mother, that's another tragedy that happened. Many of of these youngsters, if they were teenagers, they arrived, let's say, in 46, 47. But 48 was the establishment of the State of Israel, and the War of Independence continued into 49. Mm. So many of them got killed as they uh, fought. And that's yeah. what happened to her mother, who had met her father, married him immediately, had her, and and the both of them got killed. So she was raised by her grandparents, oh, which wow. is all in the previous story. Yeah. But um, she wanted to know, she knew about her father's family. She knew nothing about her mother's family. I or see. Uh, She didn't even know where she, she knew she had come from France, but nothing more. Right. Absolutely nothing. And when she finds out that this, this officer is trying to recruit her to Cherbourg, but she doesn't want to leave. Uh, she wants to wait for news about the, the boat. She realized about the sub, the drowned submarine. She realized that she will find out we're working for the Navy. But also what she really wants to do, her agenda when she accepts the job, is to investigate his youth aliyah, which is the process of bringing children, and through him to get to know something maybe something about her mother's experience. Uh, right. So that is where she becomes obsessed with his story while she works in the various projects that he gives her. And I had to be careful because this was a world of men. Anything that has to do with boats were men. <laughs> they were, they, every ship needed 21 men, mm -hmm. uh, including about five officers. 
And what was, what, how could I give any of those jobs to a woman? Yeah. But there were different procedures that I learned during the times that I interviewed so many of them. And later on, what's interesting, the French side opened to me by a complete coincidence. And I ended up interviewing people on the French side, including the head of all security, French security in the area that under wow. his nose, the boats had slipped away. <laughs> and the journalist who had covered all of this in town, he he got a whiff of that story. He got a whiff that the boats are about to leave the, ne the next night. Yeah. But because of the royal, the loyalty that the p townspeople had towards Israelis, he did not break the story. After that, he wrote about it a lot. And when I found him and we spoke on the phone first, and then uh, he invited me and my husband to his, uh, he was 84 at the time, now he's about 89, uh, 85 he was. So uh, he invited us to his uh, chalet in a French Alps for a wow. weekend. <laughs> and uh, it sounded pretty good. So I did five <laughs> trips to France. Some of them, like this one, was really a great, it was a great trip. I didn't really need everything. But he, he had an incredible additional information, more than I absolutely needed. Ended right. up with only a couple of lines here and there from those uh, interviews with him. But uh, so I must say that it was quite an interesting project. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so how does your novel approach the question of Jewish identity? when it comes to ethnicity, secularism, and national nationality? It's, it's very interesting because the group in Cherbourg are Israelis mostly, mostly secular. Okay. Mostly secular. But, for example, the, the men who built all of this, the, the head of, the owner of the shipyard, mm -hmm. as he's not Jewish, he has quite an interesting story. He appears in every biography of Coco Chanel, by the way. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's another story, but it's a very sexy part that he he appears he appears there. And right. something that happened uh in in during uh World War Two. So this again going back many years prior, twenty-four years, twenty-five years prior. Um so he, for example, says, asks one of the, uh, my protagonists, uh, how come all the galleys in the ships, they're having, uh, he's teaching her how to eat shrimp and uh, seafood. And he says to her, but I don't understand. She says to him that I'm not kosher. Most of, most of us are not kosher. He says, yeah. but why are the galleys in, in all the boats have to be kosher? Because he's the one's building. So you need to explain how you can be so Jewish and so connected to the people and the history of the people. And you see that sense, yet you have nothing to do with religion. Yet they preserve 
the holidays in certain ways. That's some aspects. We have a very interesting character in um, a, a young uh, seamstress in the Loire Valley that we meet, very fascinating, Un- uneducated, who is uh, disabled. Mm-hmm. And when she, she, because she was disabled, she could never walk to school, so she never learned to read, to read and write. But a Jewish peddler who was visiting always taught her, he would weekly taught her how to read and write. And then eventually it got, got her a brace so she could, as she was growing up, she could weigh, um, balance herself better. Mm. So her experience with a, a Jewish person was very positive. Right. And years later, she says, oh, I want to be Jewish. And, no, you can't. The Jews don't, it's not like I want to be Catholic. So this is an example of how she had to learn. And she's a pretty important character, without giving spoilers. She is an important character who has to learn how that it's not easy. What does it mean to be Jewish? She asks another person. She meets one more person. What does it mean to be Jewish? And they say to her, to do good to the world. Hmm. Uh, and this is in the middle of uh, World War II. And where everybody around her is speaking about the demonizing the Jews who are the curse of France. Supposedly, all, all the problems of France has to do with the Jews. And she has a different experience. Yeah. Of Judaism, but she doesn't really know what it is, except that she wants to belong to these good people against right. everything else. And that is little by little, we have different characters. The Loire Valley, by the way, ended up being very important and took another trip uh, at the end. But that came to me while during co- um, COVID. So I, in, investigated and researched, first of all, which villages, because it came through a a story about a particular life in a particular chateau with a uh, duchess, Duchess Sylvia de Castellan, a real person, who at uh, Chateau Valencé hid Jewish people, hid Jews, but she also Mm -hmm. hid uh, the the, um, arts of uh, the Louvre at the same time. Oh, okay. Uh, so the German, she had, the, you know, the, the place wasn't a very safe place for Jews since the Germans were looking for the art. I, I mean, all of this is a tremendous amount of research. Yes. So I, what I did to figure out the towns around Valencay, I used drones. Oh, my goodness, really? Yeah. And <laughs> with uh, tour guides and, and, and many of those drones, uh, pictures were already videos were available because if you go to the town site, they very often give you what it looks like through, through a drone. But right. then in October 21, I went there for my fifth trip because I really mm-hmm. didn't know the Loire Valley. And I had to f- check those towns and see how they fit into the book that th- by that time was already written and indeed one town did not even though i checked it from drones and interviewed people (laughs) and had to 
drive around. Uh, luckily, my daughter was with me and she drove with me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, found another town that was more uh, appropriate for that particular thing. Uh, but uh, back to the Jewish identity that comes to questions of not just the Jews, but how outsiders force a Jewish person or an Israeli to figure out. And then we come against what does it really mean according to the halacha, which is the code of Jewish, Jewish code of uh, rules and regulations that's past the Bible. It's the Jewish wisdom mm, of the okay. sages, what, how they define a Jew, which is different. Um, so I did, I also wanted to ask you about your own heritage. Are you Jewish? Oh, yes. I'm Israeli. You're Israeli. That's, I'm I thought Israeli, maybe. And being Israeli is being Jewish, but yes. I'm not religious. I'd never been to a synagogue until I came to the United States. Okay. And yet we studied the Bible for 12 years in a curriculum, in a school, in a secular school, right. not as a word of God, but as a book of poetry and history. Okay. So I'm very connected to yeah. my traditions. I'm very connected to my people's future, past, present, and definitely future now. Right, sure. But it's 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 being Jewish through and through with that. I'm not I don't even believe in God personally. And mm. since I was a child, I never be believed. And I don't need that to be Jewish. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting how there's there's the Jewish religion, which is different from the Jewish tradition and heritage and uh, yes, culture. And yes, and the Jewish tradition can be the holidays, which my team in Sherbourg, it's a team of about 20 people living there at, at any time when Sharon joins them, some with families with kids. They uh, celebrate the holidays. Right. And uh, I found something very interesting. There had been a very small Jewish community in Sherbourg because that's where the big ships had left to go to the New World. The Titanic, mm. the St. Louis last stop was in Sherbourg, the Titanic okay. last stop was the Sherbourg. This was the big, the times that the big boats. And what yeah. happened is in the early 1940s, when uh, before, before the Nazi invasion, let's say it's 39, yeah. Many Jews escaped Europe through get, getting to Sherbourg, but they didn't all have mm -hmm. money for the passages. So sometimes, let's say, the men left to, to the New World, the family left behind expecting to be uh, brought back, brought uh, across later. Yes. Uh, so there was a small Jewish community that had settled there. And the time that the Israelis arrived, they revived the Jewish life for them in right. very interesting ways. Yeah. And that was, that's another little aspect that comes. So it, it comes in different ways. Yeah, sure. I believe, am I correct in thinking this is your sixth book? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. So have you always loved to write? How did you become a published author with that first book? Well, the process obviously is very long, and and I think that every author, with very few exceptions, have very long, tedious stories about how <laughs> the first book got published. But Probably. let me just backtrack a bit that I was a very good writer as a child in Hebrew, and I got the Bialik Award with, at the age of 10, which is equivalent to like the Shakespeare Award, wasn't even a competition. I just was... One day, my principal said, walk over to Bialik House and get an award. And then I went to a French high school. So as a teenager, I wrote poetry in French. Wow, cool. Because if you have three languages at your disposal. And then uh, I had a very big, glorious career in marketing, magazine publishing, and advertising, which was one career, even though it sounds like three, but it's one career. I was really in the business world. My, I studied economics, my studied for my master's in economics. And I always have this very big view of the world because of my background in economics. Yeah. And I also traveled a lot which is why each one of my novels is set elsewhere because that's where the story is. I don't look for a country and say, what am I going to tell? But rather a story that hits me and it happens to be in a different country. Right. Uh, So then in 1993, I'll make it short because it's a very long story. You need to read the book Hotel Moscow, which tells something about how I started to write. The book okay. was written, published 20 years later. But hotel, I, in 1993, I was sent by the USIA, Youth Information Agency, that sends experts around the world to teach, to teach uh, entrepreneurship to Russian women after the fall of communism. And I went twice that year, second time got caught in the uprising of the Russian parliament against Boris Yeltsin. And I was caught in the military. It was a very harrowing experience. I came back, sent around my report at that time, pre-internet, really, pre-email. Yeah. Uh, I would, I had the hard copy of all my of my 23 page report mm-hmm. and on November 3rd 1993 I sat to lunch with a friend who was a journalist and I said here's my report don't ask any more questions all it needs is hot sex and I have a novel <laughs> so she said why don't you write it so I went back to the office and at 248 I began to type, and that's where my writing career began. My first novel was obviously a very, very, uh, not I, I don't want to use the word, but not a very, very poor version, 640 <laughs> pages of I don't know what. Oh, wow. But it had a lot of, a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that's when I started to take classes and learn, learning the skill of fiction writing, which right. is not simple at all because even now I, I cannot write a book without feedback from other readers from my writing group sure. yeah. to tell me whether they 
uh, they might something they doesn't sit well or they don't understand. It's the questions more. They they don't nobody tells you what to do, but rather what's not working or asking you why is this or why is that. And that's right. I find extremely helpful. Yes, for sure. So anyway, my first novel was uh, self-published. At okay. the time that it was not familiar, but because I was a mark, I was a marketing consultant to Fortune 500 companies. I yeah. had the top of all companies in America were my clients until that time that I started to write. I mentioned to you that I was in the business world, and uh, so I knew that I could do any marketing job that a 22 year old could do at a advert- at a publishing house. Sure. And I did, and immediately the book came out in October 2002. And by December, it made Book Browse put at the top 10 first novels 2002, along with Alice uh, Seabold, The Lovely Bones. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Oh, I must say before then, I'm sorry. That book was age, had been agented and almost bought by Simon Schuster. And the editor loved it, and she met with me and wanted me to add another twist, which I did. And then she sat on it for five months, and then <laughs> she moved on to something else. So I already knew that the book was really good, Simon Schuster level. Right. And that the editing had been done and it was a very good book. So now it immediately made made some waves. And because of its nature, it, it was uh, a women's issues and uh, legal issues of uh, custod- custody by abusive men. Mm-hmm. I Within the next uh, year, it launched a law and protective parent reform act that passed in four states and 20 clauses appeared wow. elsewhere. So anyway, so the book became a platform for social activism, which was great. Okay, so this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I First, I think that it gives us the inside view with the sensitivity that headlines in a newspaper could not possibly do. The same information or even more detailed information can be given in nonfiction. And some nonfiction books are excellent. Really, yeah. I love reading some nonfiction. Some of them are fabulous. Right, right. But to crawl under a skin of a character or maybe two or three point of view characters as the case may be but living and learning those issues through their own emotions is something that is unique to fiction Mm -hmm. and with learning that hopefully we become more sensitive to certain things in the world and the world would be a better place. This is a hard time for me to say that given the very cruel war that's going on now between Israel and Hamas. Yes. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible situation where Hamas, the more people, Palestinian Israel kill, Hamas wins. 
mm-hmm. and that's their purpose because they don't care about the people. Right. And uh, Israel cannot accept having an enemy so brutal next to next to her. I, I, and I must say, I want to come as an economist. Before 2001, the first intifada, when half of all the people of Gaza worked in Israel, according to the International Monetary Fund, mm-hmm. their average income was higher than all of average income of anyone in the Arab world. Why? Because Israel has laws and it has a minimum wage and it could not exploit and it had to give them benefits and it had to give them vacations and it had to give them all kinds of even now somebody was telling me uh, a year ago i was in a kibbutz in gaza and Mm. they showed me the dining room and they said it's too expensive for the members now to eat but according to law we have to feed the day workers so the day workers were getting to eat in the restaurant that was too expensive for (laughs) <laughs> for the residents of the kibbutz. Oh my goodness. Uh, so the what the Gazan received at that time, and this again, International Monetary Fund, the highest average income in the Arab world were those Gazans until 2001 with the first intifada. Uh, again, I can't help but bring the economist in me. Right, sure. I understand. Well, Talia, this has been a great conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? I'm I'm still on Facebook. Isama says, I don't know if it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm learning my way through Instagram. Mm-hmm. But I, I really am still, I can't figure some things out. And... Um, I would say I love Facebook. It has done yeah, me a lot best. of good. I made a lot of friends. I can sort out who are my friends or not. <laughs> who follows me? I can even decide who not who I don't allow to follow me. Right. And um, I both I involve people on other issues that I care about, mm-hmm. and it creates conversations which are very interesting to me because if I just wanted my own opinion, I'd be speaking to myself mm-hmm. and it can, it can be very interesting, but there's no need to go elsewhere. If I go elsewhere, I want to hear other people's opinions if I can learn from them. Right. So, so it's uh, author Talia. Author Talia is one word. At, uh, on Facebook, and also on I have Facebook. Talia Karner, which is a author page. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you, Allison. I really appreciate it. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Talia. I hope you enjoyed it. I feel like we covered so much, and there were things I could have gotten into more deeply with her, but for the sake of time, we didn't... Um, you know, delve into every issue. But I think it was still a great chat and I hope you gleaned much from it. Now, as always, can you help out the show by following, rating, reviewing it, and sharing it with someone that you think would enjoy it? You can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. That is where the show notes and the episodes live 
forever and always. So you can go there for links to Talia's website, to her social media and her books, and also to um, my newsletter and various other links of interest. Now, my friends, I'm going to leave you with a quote. And this one, it's a long quote to go with a long interview, but it's from Anne Frank. And when I read it, I just really wanted to share it with you. Who has inflicted this upon us? Who has made us Jews different from all other people? Who has allowed us to suffer so terribly till now? It is God that has made us as we are, but it will be God too who will raise us up again. If we bear all this suffering, and if there are still Jews left when it is over, then Jews, instead of being doomed, will be held up as an example. Who knows, it might even be our religion from which the world and all peoples learn good. And for that reason, and that reason alone, do we have to suffer now. We can never become just Netherlanders, or just English, or representatives of any country for that matter. We will always remain Jews, but we want to, too. So my friends, keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week.